morning is Romans 8, verses 12 to 27, which you can find on page 919 in the Black Bible you were given as you entered. Before I read the passage, Ron will lead us in a prayer for illumination. Okay. Dear Lord God, thank you that we can pray to you as your children. We ask your Holy Spirit to bless us today as we listen to your, your word. Open our ears to listen. Open our eyes to help hope for what we cannot see. Open our heart to trust in your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Great, thanks. Sylvia has copies of the manuscript. I'm always amazed, no matter how many, how carefully I try to weed out the mistakes. There are still some, and um, this is going to be a sermon that 
has a little bit of visual too, mostly words. I want to do a close study of this text. Um, something got lost in translation though. The Greek fonts that are installed on my computer aren't installed on this computer so that when you see something that I say is Greek, it's not really how Greek looks. So, <laughs> Oh well, nice try. Let me start, friends of Jesus Christ, let me start by focusing on just one verse from this amazing passage. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you are attentive to style, to the principles of rhetoric, you'll notice an elegant concentric structure in that sentence, an elaborate chiasmus. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The ideas go back and forth. They form a mirror image, living that leads to dying, contrasted with dying that leads to living. That's a snapshot of Paul's rhetorical brilliance. You could teach a graduate-level course in rhetoric on this chapter from Romans. In fact, Paul often makes his way into textbooks on classical rhetoric. If you're attentive to substance as well as to style, and I hope we all are, you'll also notice that these words express the very core of the gospel. It's just about the same thing Jesus said, isn't it? Those who want to save their lives will lose them, but those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. And if you are attentive to what this means for how we actually live, you'll recognize that Paul is setting before us and all his readers the starkest and most consequential choice anyone will ever make. To borrow and <clears throat> maybe somewhat elevate an idea from the poet Robert Frost, whichever road you take and whichever road you choose not to take, both are in the picture here, that is what will make all the difference. And not just in this world, but in the ages to come. But if we follow Paul's sense of direction, Paul's train of thought here, we can see that Paul doesn't really pay that much attention to the road we should not take. He mentions it and he moves on. Paul takes one look at the path that leads to death and then turns away from it and never looks back. Our passage actually begins with a denial. We are not debtors to the flesh. We have no obligation to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So let's not even go there. That's the mind of Paul. And for the rest of this passage, Paul directs his heart and ours, his mind and ours, his soul, his whole being and ours in exactly the opposite direction. Paul's very first sentence is set up for that turning in a different direction. So then... Brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
Now, here's the thing about Paul. Sometimes he, he sort of trails off. He seems to get lost in his own exuberance. So he never really finishes that sentence, does he? What comes after the dash? Would Paul say something like this? Instead, we are debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. That's certainly what Paul means and certainly what all of this implies. And that's pretty much where Paul is going for the rest of this passage, except I think Paul would make the contrast even sharper. We are not debtors to the flesh. Rather, we are set free by the Spirit. We are not slaves to the flesh. Rather, we are set free to be the children of of God. Those are the kinds of contrasts Paul has in mind. Debtors who are released. Captives who are set free. Slaves to sin who become children of God. There's a climactic verse, verse 21, that sums it up very nicely. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a lot of uh, ofs there. Paul really piles up the genitive case in this sentence. And I'm going to come back to that. But what I'm trying to do here is sketch out the contours of the map that Paul is giving us in this passage. Paul's mapping out a journey that starts in bondage to decay. And that's a pretty strong word in Greek. Phthora. It's, it's, it's kind of even sounds icky. It's what bodies do after they die and they decay. He starts there, but he ends in the, the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's Paul's main sense of direction in this part of his letter to the Christians in ancient Rome who knew something about slavery and freedom. We're set free by the Spirit to be the children of God. Those are my words to summarize Paul's thought. Here are Paul's own words. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the glorious freedom of the children of God. I kind of cheated a little bit here and rendered this the way the NIV does uh, because that phrase, of the glorious freedom of the children of God, um, sounds better than of the freedom, of the glory, of the children of God. And the, the way Paul uses genitives can be a little tricky to translate, but that's just a small point. I don't want to get hung up on it. We have some really large themes here. These are the ideas that dominate this passage. The Spirit, the children of God, glory and freedom. All who are led by the Spirit those are the children of God. Their destination is glory and freedom. And that's the hope to which we are saved. You could sort of sum up this whole passage on those three verses. Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. Verse 21, the, the glorious freedom of the children of God. And verse 24, the hope in which we were saved. Well, it's really good that Paul gives us this positive and hopeful sense of direction because this journey with the Spirit, as we follow the Spirit, gets a little complicated. We know where the journey is going to end up, glory and freedom. But this really glorious hope is, to use Paul's own words, a hope that is not seen. What is seen 
right now in front of our eyes is this. The path that this journey into glory and freedom takes as we follow the Spirit's leading, this path leads through suffering. We've kind of skipped that part so far. I put a pretty positive spin on this passage. But Paul talks about, I mean, it's legitimate to do that in a way. Paul talks about the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You can't get much better than that, only you can. Paul builds on that. If we are children, then we are heirs. And it just keeps getting better. We're heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're on some kind of amazing eschatological role here. And then Paul suddenly seems to hit a really big bump in the road if, in fact, we suffer with him. So that we may also be glorified with him, but it's kind of hard to get past the suffering. We probably don't like that so much. And based on Paul's sense of direction so far, up to this point, we probably wouldn't expect that, would we? You might expect to just stick with that theme of glory and not just mention the suffering. Maybe later, not right here. But that's not Paul's strategy, is it? Paul never goes into that kind of denial like marketers do, like politicians do, like preachers are always tempted to do. Paul faces it, just like Jesus. He acknowledges that being a disciple is hard I don't know where the health and wealth gospel comes from, but it doesn't come from Jesus, and it doesn't come from Paul. But Paul does give us some things that make that suffering more bearable and more sensible. First of all, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will come. Paul fixes our attention on God's promise. He lifts our gaze from suffering to the hope of what God promises, the glory that we will inherit with Jesus. Paul freely acknowledges that this glory is out of reach right now. It is a hope that is not seen. It's a hope that we have to wait for with patience. We hang in there. We endure the suffering. We fix our eyes on the promise and we endure the pain. However, Paul has more to offer us than just to hang in there and gutted out message in the face of the suffering that we have to endure as Christians. Paul isn't just like a drill sergeant or a high school football coach, you know, no pain, no gain. Paul actually has more sympathy than that. And sympathy is exactly and quite literally the right word to use when we study this passage. It's a word that actually appears in some form in our passage. Sim. Pathea means literally to suffer with or to suffer together. That S-Y-N or S-Y-M prefix in Greek always means togetherness. Synthesize, synchronize, sympathize. Look how many of these words appear in this passage we've been looking at in the last few minutes. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. In fact, 
if in fact we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Those phrases that have the word with in them in English are actually compound words that Paul makes in Greek. Ordinary words which Paul has strengthened by adding this prefix meaning with. So here are the the actual but not really Greek words that Paul uses. Um, I'll say them and you can even hear them. Summarture, sun kleronomoi, sun paschomen, sun doxastomen. Those sun prefixes would really ring out to the hearers and they jump off the page when you read this passage in Greek. But my point, once again, is not just to show Paul's clever and sophisticated rhetoric. My point is that this notion of withness is terribly important to people who suffer. You don't have to suffer alone. Maybe Paul's single most important point in this passage is that when we suffer, we don't suffer alone. We suffer with Christ. We suffer in the hope that we will be glorified with Christ. The Spirit co-testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. We are co-heirs with Christ. And therefore, we are called to co-suffer with Him so that we may be co-glorified with Him. So Paul isn't just holding out God's promise to us at the end of all this suffering. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky message. God may call us to endure suffering, but Paul is also assuring us of God's presence in the midst of our suffering, in each moment of our suffering. And I'd like to show you just how far God's withness in our suffering actually extends. Because Paul is offering us one more thing. In addition to this anticipation of God's promise that helps us hang in there and this experience of God's presence that helps us endure, Paul is showing us how we fit in to God's purpose. And not only God's purpose for us, I mean, it's true that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but God has a much bigger plan for us and for our fellow co-heirs with Christ and, in fact, for the whole creation. Um, I was talking about this passage with Cal DeWitt last week, and he he sent me a a little document that uh, the Orthodox Bishop of Delhi in India had meditating on this passage. And one phrase as I scanned the document just leaped out to me. There's no such thing as the salvation of individuals apart from the salvation of the whole creation. It's all one thing in the mind of God. And that's that's the scope that Paul has in this passage. The creation itself is suffering and groaning. That That makes a lot of sense, actually. If you think, why are things the way they are? Paul gives us a really important window into that in this passage. God has subjected the whole creation to this bondage to decay that we see all around us. It's not an indication of God's powerlessness. 
It's an indication of God's power and God's sovereignty over it. Everything we see is in a downward spiral. We don't like to think about that as much as we probably should, but look around. Deserts swallow up forests. Ancient oceans dry up. Even if we could control storms and tides and tsunamis, even if we could reverse climate change, the whole cosmos is still in a downward spiral. The sun will go dark. The intricate clockwork of galaxies will wind down. God has subjected the universe, the cosmos, to this kind of bondage to decay. But what we know is that God did this in hope. Paul says that God did this with the intention of setting the whole creation free from this entropy. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead will, in that sense, raise the whole creation from its bondage to decay. Creation is groaning, to use Paul's language, in the pains of labor, wanting to give birth to a reality that so far no eye has seen, no mind has even imagined except the mind of God. And while this creation groans, we too groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as God's children. And then in our culture, sometimes we tend to think of adoption as this, the second choice. Let me, let me tell you how Romans thought of adoption. Romans thought of adoption as empowerment. The Emperor Augustus rose to power largely because he was the adopted son and heir to Julius Caesar. And after Augustus, the Emperor Tiberius was similarly adopted and rose to power. So, so when Romans think adoption, they think empowerment. So, so we're waiting for our empowerment as God's children. And not only that, the spirit, the creation groans, we groan with the creation, and the Spirit also groans with us, within us. We don't even know how to pray as we ought to pray, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit intercedes with us and for us with sighs too deep for words. I don't know why our translators chose to use the word sigh here instead of groan. Maybe they think that Spirit's too dignified to groan, but it's actually the same word that appears in verse 23 and 22. The Spirit of God enters the creation by entering us. The creation groans, we groan within the creation, and the Spirit of God groans within us. The Spirit groans and yearns and leads and praise. The Spirit pulls us into the promises of God and prays for us according to the will of God, according to the purposes of God. And in all of this, we are profoundly blessed by the presence of God, us entering into God's presence and God the Holy Spirit entering into us, into our pain, into our groaning, praying with us, groaning through us, suffering with our spirit. This is good theology. What does it say about practice? What does this call us to do? How do we experience these things that Paul's talking about, not just 
you know, look at the literary features of them? How do we get into this? Let me suggest that we need to connect the beginning of this passage to the end of this passage. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Putting to death the deeds of the body, even with the help of the Holy Spirit, is hard work. It's our calling, but it's hard work. It's going to lead us into suffering. But let's connect that with the end of this passage. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought to pray, but that very Spirit, I think they're trying to avoid a male pronoun here in the older translations, it's the Spirit Himself. But let's say the, the very Spirit of God intercedes for us with groans, I'll say it, too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. That's you and me according to the will of God. So we have to follow where the Spirit leads. We have to do our part. We have to live by the Spirit. We have to align ourselves with God's power. There's one more with phrase in this passage that Paul probably makes up, or at least it's a rare occurrence. The Spirit helps us in our weakness is a phrase that hides another one of those sin phrases. Sin antilambanatai te asthenea emon. The Spirit comes alongside of us and strengthens us in our weakness. So we need to connect this path that we're called to walk, putting to death the deeds of our bodies, our sinfulness, to the presence and the power of the one who walks alongside us and dwells within us, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit co-intercedes for us according to the will of God. That's a tremendous source of hope and perseverance in our suffering. But here's the thing. We also need to persevere in prayer. We need to take our part seriously in that co-intercession, praying with the Spirit for our needs and for the needs of others. We can't just go, ah, there the Holy Spirit's praying. <laughs> it's a little more intentional than that, isn't it? Do some self-examination. Look around at the world. Look at, look at what's wrong out there and look at what's wrong in there. And then don't just turn away and say, oh well, God's going to do something about this someday. That's true. But we're called to something much more than that. We're called to prayer. That's what connects us to God's power. Prayer is the thing, the practice that will ground us in God's promises and align us with God's purposes and will bring us into the experience of God's presence and fill our lives with God's power. So I'll just leave it here and ask you to do one thing this week. Just pay a little attention to your part in that co-intercession. How much do you actually pray? How much do you think about what's wrong and lift that up to God? How much... When you see those misdeeds of the body still lingering in you, do you say, Lord, will you please help me get this out of here? 
I mean, it's as simple and as complicated as that. The thing is, God's, God does a lot for us, but God doesn't want this to be all us. I, I mean, all him. There's one more sin word I'll mention. Synergy. Maybe these days in this 500th anniversary year of the Reformation, some of you might have heard the word monergism. How many of you know that word? Like this is the work of one person. Salvation, a a lot of Reformed Christians like to say salvation is a monergism. Well, maybe God's choice of us from before the foundation of the world can properly be called a monergism. But God's plan for salvation is synergistic. God wants us to work with him for our salvation. The work of sanctification, the work that comes between justification and glorification is a work in which we collaborate with the Spirit of God working in us. So go out there and in the the least trivial possible sense this week, synergize with the Spirit of God. Will you pray with me now? We lift up to you our weakness, Almighty God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We pray that you will graciously bear witness with our spirits that we are your children. We pray that even our hardships will confirm for us that we belong to you, that you're working in our lives, calling us out of darkness. We pray that you will give us grace to fix our hearts on your promises and to cultivate your presence to us and ours to you. That you will make us alive and responsive to your purposes. And that you will make our weakness a place where your power is made perfect. That's astonishing to us that we can even say that. But that's your own word. God's power is made perfect in human weakness. So, Lord, we lift to you our weak selves and pray for the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and with us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.